Fixed Plasm episode 88, the OA. Have you ever had a piece of fiction suddenly awaken feelings about another piece of fiction that you haven't thought about in years? Well, I'm sure you have. So how about a follow-up question? Why hadn't you thought about it for so long? I've got a couple of ideas. You know, maybe this was part of a particularly obscure piece of fiction that just isn't in the mainstream consciousness. Or maybe it's mainstream, but because it's so obvious, you've overlooked it. But maybe also it's not the fiction itself, but the feelings around the fiction, you know, the the people you spent time with enjoying it and the conversations you had and the consensus you came to. So there is a point to this. We remember things in a particular way and with particular context and meaning. We have a tacit knowledge and experience which is more than we can ever put into words. This is a cornerstone of knowledge management around human skills and learning, but it also applies to consensus reality. Is what we remembered reliable? How much dissent is there amongst the group about a shared experience? Do we have a tribal or an individual perspective on events? So... The fiction I want to discuss is the Netflix series The OA, which was broadcast in two parts, the first in late 2016 and the follow-up in early 2019. And it was planned for five seasons, but it was cancelled in August 2019, so it really ends on a cliffhanger. Although, when I watched the second season, I almost wondered if it had been cancelled mid-production, because that season has all the hallmarks of a series... I don't know, sensing its own demise. You know, there's so much stuff crammed into the second series, especially in the final episodes. I'm going to talk about the series and the synopsis and the overall genre, and then I'll talk about role-playing, not just for ideas looking forward, but also the way this series unexpectedly connected me to certain games and people in the 90s and noughties. And as usual, I'll wrap things up with uh, a discussion on other media. So here we go. The first part, or season, looks at the character Prairie Johnson, who was blind and has been missing for several years, and then she returns home, able to see, with scars on her back and referring to herself as the OA, or Original Angel. And she won't tell her adoptive parents what happened to her, but through flashbacks we learn that she was abducted along with four other people. And all these people had had near-death experiences, Prairie's being her near-drowning as a child, and... They've been abducted by a psychologist called Dr. Hunter Aloysius Percy, or HAP. HAP's thesis is that there are other dimensions and that near-death experiences are actually the person coming into contact with the other dimension. And he subjects the captives to experiments that cause near-death experiences, basically killing them for a small amount of time and then reviving them. And the captives grow together through their experiences and they discover through contact with some kind of spirit world a series of physical motions, like a weird interpretive dance, and this promotes transition between dimensions. And in the early episodes, we know that Prairie's escaped, but we're not sure how. But what we are told is that her friends are in some other dimension, and to get to them, she needs help from others to do the same divine motions. So she finds and trains up a group of characters, mostly teens, to help her. And these characters follow the classic breakfast club format with a rebel and a nerd and an outsider but it actually also includes their teacher which is kind of an interesting twist and they start meeting up and being secretly trained in these divine motions by prairie in what i think is um a house under construction so you know they're sort of 
middle America suburbia. And so there's a number of houses that are halfway through completion. So there's, they all pile into one of these and practice their secret thing. But they also have the standard side plots of teens going through the, the usual coming-of-age trials. It's not quite as convincing in the first season, but in the second, when they bond together, there's a lot more payoff. And the first season ends with... Well, um, this is a bit of a spoiler, sorry, but it ends with a school shooting where, in order to protect everyone in the cafeteria against a gun-wielding student, the five characters start performing the angelic motions. Everyone survives miraculously, except Prairie, who catches a single bullet and is rushed to hospital in a massive cliffhanger. And in this first season, we're never sure if anything Prairie has claimed about the other dimensions and about her captivity can be relied upon. There's no real glimpse into other worlds that isn't from her perspective. And the motions seem like complete nonsense. So at the time, it could be a combination of a massive delusion coupled with blind luck that it was only prairie who got shot there is the hint though that at the end of the first season she's being carried away in the ambulance and she's also departing the world and heading for another dimension so it's another near-death experience now in the second part it's really made clear that the other dimensions do exist you know there's no question about it hap has basically uh coerced the other four excluding Prairie, of course, into doing the motions to transport the five of them into another dimension. He does so by um, coercing them with a, a lethal injection and says, if you don't do these motions together, we're all going to die here. Uh, Prairie has also made the transition. You know, she had having the near-death experience at the end of the previous season, and she's transitioned into Nina Arazova, which was her original name, um, before she was adopted. So she was originally the daughter of a Russian mobster. And in this world, the the this Russian mobster survived long enough for her to grow up. Hap and the others have assumed the identities of a doctor and patient in Treasure Island, which is a private psychiatric hospital. And once OA, as Nina, has regained her memories, which takes a little while, she starts to hunt for the other characters, and she ends up in the same place, where she and her fellow prisoners of Hap are now conscious of themselves, but unable to act, being psychiatric patients under Hap, who now identifies as Dr. Percy. OA's task here is to try and wake her friends up and escape. But there's a lot more to this season, and in this world... A private investigator, Kareem Washington, is looking for a missing girl in the Bay Area. And this is a plot that's connected with suicides related to an online game and a weird puzzle house in San Francisco that uh, turns out to be a kind of occult mystery. There's also science fiction elements, subtle pervasive technology that isn't present in our world. There's a corporation experimenting on dreaming women. There's a suggestion of things passing from dream into reality. There are robots that can be programmed to do the five divine motions. And there are tourists from other dimensions who may or may not be part of a broader organisation. Mostly they're presented as just individuals. And there's a giant psychic octopus in a tank in an underground burlesque club. So that's the alternate world. Back in the original world, 
these five teens plus the teacher recruited by OA take this road trip to try to understand what's happened to her. You know, they visit spiritualists, they see ghosts in mirrors, they receive coded messages on late night TV. Uh, they continue their coming of age trials. We find out that, um, minor spoiler, she did actually die in this world, but clearly she's still alive in the other world as Nina. And this second and final season ends really abruptly and weirdly with various characters moving through time and space, seeing doubles of themselves. And at one point, two of the actors end up playing themselves in one of the dimensions where the suggestion is that everybody is on the set of the series. And that's a massive cliffhanger, but I will forgive it because it's a really high point that they ended on. Um, I did want more, but at the same time, this will always be one of those things that isn't quite explained. Before I talk about role-playing, I have one other remark, and it's really good for diversity, I think. You know, there aren't too many persons of colour, aside from Kareem, but we do have a young trans man, a gay teen, a middle-aged teacher, who should be completely out of place in the social group, but she isn't. Um... It represents these characters, really, it just it just presents them at face value. It doesn't make a big deal of their difference. In fact, it, uh, it understates them completely. There's a particularly memorable bit in, in the middle of the series where the group is holed up in a church uh, on their road trip, and they're all at a low end, so they all go out separately. One of them goes to score drugs, and the other goes to have sex with another man. And both of these kinds of things are often portrayed in fiction and mainstream straight fiction as risky things to do they're not risky here um i think uh, yeah the the person who nervously scores drugs is reassured by a fairly chilled out and normal looking dealer that you know you're going to have a great time uh, just don't go crazy on these and um everything's okay that it's just a transaction and the other uh, the the gay team there's a very tender uh, post-shag conversation that the two of them have about his anxieties and the older older man is very caring and reassuring and behaves in a very responsible way to a person who's younger and less experienced than him which is frankly not often something that you see something quite so intimate between two guys that isn't also portrayed as risky and edgy so I like the way that the episode seemed to normalise those things uh, and didn't make a big deal of them. Overall, despite being a cancelled series, I really think it's worth a watch, especially if cross-dimensional fantasy is your bag. So I'm going to talk about themes next. When I watched the OA, especially the second season, it really took me back to the games a friend of mine, Dawn, ran in the 90s and noughties. They all had their own particular style, they were light on system, they were usually modern day liminal fantasy, and they were usually mysteries. And I say mysteries rather than investigations, because I think there's a subtle distinction between the two. In an investigation, your goal is to resolve something and uncover the truth. In a mystery, there is always the element of the unknown, but it's not the primary drive of the character. They may well be curious about the mystery, but it runs parallel to their personal arc. Now, that in itself might be splitting hairs a bit, but making a solid distinction relating to role-playing games, I also note that in an investigation game, you may be punished for looking for the truth via a mechanism of sanity or insight. 
in a mystery game, you're not. You're not being punished for it being exposed to weirdness. It's just there. And this is the difference between Call of Cthulhu and Over the Edge. There's no reason that the weird experiences in Over the Edge should be any less frightening than those in Call of Cthulhu, but the mechanical effect isn't there in Over the Edge. I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, you even have an incentive to try to resolve the investigation because you're rewarded with a sand boost for a positive conclusion. And this reinforces uh, a very mission-like structure of a Call of Cthulhu-type scenario. And that, that does make it good for time-restricted play, you know, like at conventions. And by contrast, a mystery game can meander all over the place. And I think there's a really good reason for this. Investigation plots are often proactive in the sense that they will have repeated beats that provoke a reaction and prompt action. But a mystery, often it's quite passive, and it relies on the PC's response to follow the mystery as opposed to their own goals. And there's an interesting bit in Ron Edwards' game Sorcerer, one of his very early ones, uh, where he discusses four ways to organise play. And those four ways are the dungeon way, the squad way, the dumb way, and the hard way. So the dungeon way is this, quote, the characters coincidentally team up in response to a threat or a promised reward and then stay together as a team as new opportunities present themselves. It works for certain genres, say superhero teams, but not so well in a modern setting. For one thing, the rewards involved are not as simplistic as gold or experience points. Unless there's a real reason for the characters to bond in the first run or two, the players may rebel against the assumption that they have done so, often expressing this dissatisfaction with inter-character conflicts. Now, this is actually similar to the squad way, uh, which is, I quote, the characters are initially defined in the context of a task force of some kind, as in, you're all members of the FBI or experts they call in regularly. Now, Edwards says this squad way is often boring and it constrains play, and I think you can see why it might. In the dungeon way, you tend to have diverse individuals coming together for a common goal, whereas in the squad way, your characters are bound by an organisation, and they're free to ignore anything that doesn't fall within the scope of the jobs. And if you have creative people, they'll come up with all sorts of reasons that the scenario is not my circus, not my monkeys, not my job. And this is my this is my take on it, not that that's not Edward's quote. But I've got the annotated sorcerer, and in the annotations he reinforces his position on the squad, with the caveat that his position comes from comic books and supers play. And I get that, but I think that his experience is quite different from mine. For one, in my view, the organisation isn't a restriction on scope of play so much as a sandbox and defines the kinds of things the characters come into contact with. I also find it a bit curious that for someone who despises the squad mode of play, uh, he drips praise on Jared Sorensen's Lacuna RPG. But anyway, these distinctions aside, I think both the dungeon and the squad way fall on the investigation end of the spectrum. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, we have the mystery end, into which I lump his two other categories, which are the dumb way and the hard way. First, the dumb way is, quote, By giving no structure at all, the GM provides perfect freedom and realism for the players. In other words, there is no reason for a story to occur. 
the characters are roped into a shared situation. They deal with it, they get roped by coincidence into another one, and on and on. The players will often respond by caring less and less about the stories themselves, and the game falls apart. Then there's the hard way, quote, the characters are relatively subtly connected by their own histories, some ways known to the players, some ways not. For example, maybe their mentors were once a cabal. Now they're tossed together not by coincidence, but by events that do connect them to one another. So as the characters meet, the players have things to learn. The picture that emerges, how the characters' backgrounds are related, should carry with it an alarming or even terrifying threat, so that it is natural for the characters to bond with one another. Now, in the annotations, Edwards acknowledges that the dumb way isn't actually the dumb way. This is what he says. The dumb way, well, I feel a kind of bad calling it that now. Among other reasons, a lot of play which looks like this really isn't, relying on more subtle structure, and in fact, Sorcerer works pretty well like that. End quote. So, what he's calling the dumb way is actually the way many games I played in the 90s organised themselves, and they were successful. And he even says that Sorcerer works fine just like that. You could take a step further even, and point out that a lot of PBTA starts just following the characters around, and is often about framing scenes around individual narratives, rather than squad action. And as for the hard way, the way this is different from the dumb way is that you have characters tenuously connected, but they're brought together against a common threat through manipulation of their own goals. Now, Edwards does clarify his position in the annotations, saying that what he wrote wasn't really what he meant, which was, complex backstory is fine, but relying on players coming together isn't. And I totally get behind that. And also, I don't want to be too critical of this part of Sorcerer, because it's actually really groundbreaking commentary to talk about organisation and player motivation in this way, even if the initial model doesn't stand up to reality. It reminds me of the four different fights in Christoph Amberger's Secret History of the Sword. There, Amberger separates these into two groups, being agonistic and antagonistic combat, Agonistic is then subdivided into competitive sport fencing and stage combat, and antagonistic is one-to-one -one lethal duels and many-to-many all-out battlefield engagements. So, if we draw two axes for Ron Edwards' method, on one axis we ask, are the PCs organised with particular problem-solving roles in mind? Those that are, are the Dungeoneers and the squad. On the other axis, is there an actual threat or big bad? For the dungeon way and the hard way, that's a yes. But for the squad way and the dumb way, it's a no. At least, not at the start, not obviously. And phrased that way, it's not hard to see that the quotes dungeon way, which answers yes to both questions, is your Call of Cthulhu investigation. It has a bunch of diverse people coming together to attack a particular thing. And a mystery is in the opposite quadrant and answers no to both. There are no defined roles, there's no defined bad guy. Still works though. 
The fact is that although the dumb way, this mystery way, answers no to both questions, it does mean that the individual characters won't have their own goals, nor does it mean that there isn't an overarching opponent, but what it does mean is their attitude to the opponent is more subtle than the binary choice of we must oppose and defeat it. And this is a perfectly credible position for a game, and it resembles a lot of modern fantasy horror games I've played all the way through the 90s to today. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent into RPG theory. I don't want to make too much of it. Let's talk about something a bit more setting related. Um, so, alternate worlds. The OA is about visiting dimensions where you live an alternate life, often predicated on a life choice or event. For example, whether a parent lives or dies, whether you have a childhood accident, who influenced you to choose a particular academic discipline, and so on. And part of the interesting bits of the narrative is characters feeling their way around the plot and the lives that they are now intruding on. So a few thoughts on this. Firstly, how much do you care about your alternate self and their life if you've jumped into it? Some of the travellers ride the bodies like stolen cars. It's not clear from the series whether once the traveller vacates the current body and moves into the next world, whether the body it leaves behind is in physical distress, but there is a hint that it might kill the body. Even aside from that, there's you know the physical and the social and the financial harm that can be done to your alternate body. Perhaps you don't care about that, should you care? But also, can you mechanise that with some kind of humanity rating or angst that the dimensional traveller suffers? And if their humanity from doing these jumps drops, what happens? Do they, for example, fail to suppress the memories of their other selves? I mean, that's a good point, in fact. Are they conscious of their other selves, like Erikos or the Eternal Champion? If I remember correctly, actually, this is how jumping along the Royal Road in Continuum's Narcissist game works. You basically jump into other realities and versions of yourself and steal their lives for a time and then burn them up so you can advance up or down the ladder of time. So building on these thoughts then, does anyone police the dimensions, first of all? Um, I mean, it, also, it does seem that people bump into each other, so various souls gravitate around one another, which kind of makes sort of sense because the changing we're talking about between timelines is very small so the majority of people remain in the same place and their paths are still entangled on that last point um, the changes between worlds are small because we're not talking about the gonzo dimensional shifts of amber or other fantasies you know the worlds are very similar but sometimes there's different disruptive tech for example one world might have less or more social media um, but there's it's not like um, it's not like jumping into this other world means you're suddenly at risk of committing a faux pas. Uh, there are no weird customs suddenly. Basically, the world is the world, but it's just very slightly remixed each time. You know, a, a bit of reverb or more emphasis on the drums or the backing singers, if you get my drift. Now, that leads me on to the next idea, which is, for much of the first season, we're not sure if Prairie actually experienced what she claimed. Her whole story could have been made up whole cloth. I have the idea that these changes are so small it is possible for a traveller's claims of being from another dimension to be doubted or overlooked by authorities. I mean, they're attuned to them, they know what to look for, but the worlds they jump into, they have no experience of travellers, they don't believe. It's much easier to believe that this person is deluded. 
if you have travelers claiming to be from other worlds also um you know where let's say american independence never happened or where uh i don't know dijon is the capital of france or something people would notice i mean there, there would actually be people alert to this idea so there's a consensus reality in each version of the world that exerts pressure on everyone in the world and is reinforced by people it's this pressure that the traveler feels when they enter a new world so they need to hang on to their sense of self to remain functional it also means that they're vulnerable to people who would convince them you know for their own good that the world that they think they come from isn't real and they need to conform to this one and maybe when your traveler arrives this pressure immediately starts eating away at them telling them that their memories are delusions maybe they can withstand the pressure by integrating into society as a, a kind of sleeper on the other hand if they are apt to behaving recklessly and antisocially they end up burning through their self-belief faster and that means they need to jump sooner and you could quantify this on, a, on say a single linear scale like you know a bit like vampire humanity or you could have a clock that counts down as soon as you arrive in the new reality, you know, like Powered by the Apocalypse. Or uh, you could have a bunch of memories that you're hanging on to, like Wraith the Oblivion's Passions and Fetters. And the last thing for role-playing is, uh, is the means of crossing. And the transit in the OA is achieved by a number of divine motions, which may be performed by several humans doing this interpretive dance. But there's also a suggestion that it can be achieved by machines that copy those motions. A number of computers that can do the repeated motions, for example. So there's two ways of crossing in this case. One is with a bunch of people. So you have five travellers who are bound together and they have to make the crossing as a party. That, of course, creates a vulnerability. You know, you know, If you lose one party member, you have to fill that gap. And that itself could be tricky if some of your members are up against the clock because they need to jump uh, because they're at risk of psychosis. And the other method, of course, is, is a machine that makes the portal for you by making the same motions artificially. And obviously, this allows you to travel individually. But what you don't know is how you make the next jump after that, because you can't just take the equipment with you. So then your traveller has to memorise blueprints. And then on the other side, they'll have to gather resources in the next world, which may or may not be straightforward. And then I wonder what's actually happening when the portal is opened. And I'm guessing it's an Einstein-Rosen bridge or a traversable wormhole. Um, I'm not sure how that fits with the near-death experience stuff. But... Einstein-Rosen bridges are used in fiction as a path to other versions of Earth, such as in Grant Morrison's Zenith, or they're also used as a way of time travel, for example, in the um, in Denzel Washington film Deja Vu, which is very boring. And the scientific explanations for these are a bit beyond me, but it involves general relativity and exotic matter like particles with negative mass to make a wormhole traversable by holding it open. So my theory is that these divine motions are somehow generating exotic matter. This weird interpretive dance that the pieces are doing is in fact a kind of magic that aligns reality in a particular way. For example, stabilizing dynamically appearing and collapsing wormholes at the Planck scale and growing them so they're big enough to allow transition. 
and I guess this connects some of the idea about death with a, a near-death experiences with wormholes. Um, but it is just a theory as far as the OA goes. But I suppose it's environmental magic via general relativity. For the last bit, I'd like to talk about some other media that's worth your time. Uh, and the first one is on near-death experiences. I have to mention Flatliners. That's the original with Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts, rather than uh, the remake with, uh, with Elliot Page, which I haven't seen. Um, killing and reviving characters is a big part in the first series of the OA. And there's also a suggestion of things coming out of dreams in the second. Um Flatliners, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of Brat Pack adjacent. It also has Kevin Bacon in it. But it raises an interesting question, you know, in Flatliners, what if those characters going through their near-death experiences actually were touching on other timelines, not just their own past? Okay, moving on. Um, the next bit of media are some TV series. Uh, first is Dark, which is a three-season title, which is also on Netflix. It's in German. Um, and it's about time traveling characters, but it also includes crossing over into alternate timelines. Um, ultimately, I think it disappeared up its own fundament, but it does actually conclude. It doesn't leave it on a on a cliffhanger, and it looks fantastic. It feels the the atmosphere is amazing, and the soundtrack is really good as well. The second is much more obscure. It's a one-season-only series called Odyssey 5, where a bunch of characters witness the destruction of Earth from the space shuttle, and then they are sent back in time to avert the calamity that happened by some kind of interstellar deity who arrived too late to avert the destruction, but they have enough power to send them back into earlier versions of themselves. Um, so a major theme is, of course, interacting with the original timeline and changing the changing events with full knowledge of the original future but also the tone of the series as i remember it becomes more and more convoluted with multiple extraterrestrial ai factions weird technology cults other stuff um like the oa it ended on a cliffhanger but i really think it's worth watching and i feel it has very much the same heart as the oa despite a, a vastly different premise all right, lastly, for the hell of it, I'll mention some general alternate Earth stuff. Um, actually, first, I want to mention Everway, the marvellous cross-dimensional RPG that is currently in Kickstarter, if you're listening in February. Uh, it's February 2021. Um, I think it closes in very early March, so have a look. Uh, I did interview the producer of the Silver Anniversary Edition back in episode 84. Um Next thing I want to mention, I already mentioned Grant Morrison's Zenith, which is basically all about old Fleetway superheroes battling the Loigor on, on alternate Earths. Basically, the many angled ones need superheroic bodies to contain their forms so they can invade our reality. Great stuff. Love a bit of Grant Morrison. Um, following on to that, there is Ian MacDonald's Evanus trilogy, which I'm due a reread, I think. Really great YA fiction around multiple Earths. Uh, it's got airships, uh, coal punk stroke steampunk, interdimensional bridges, intelligent dinosaurs, you know, very pulpy, very good fun. Um, and lastly, I'm going to mention a couple of video games. And the first one is The Longest Journey, which is another bit of media that makes me think about my friend Dawn, um, because she was very much into The Longest Journey. It may or may not be her absolute favourite game, I'm not sure. Um, 
it feels very much like her game, so that's a lot where her influence came from. It is a mystery, and it bridges worlds and has characters with with feet in each world. Um, and it's old enough that it runs at very low resolution, but you can get it on Steam, which is okay. Um, and it runs with minimal glitches. And the other game, which you can also get on Steam, uh, is uh, one of my all-time favourites, which is Omicron the Nomad Soul, famously featuring David Bowie and songs from Bowie's Hours album. And I think this was around the time when he was selling shares in himself and creating an online presence. He may have even been a Bowie ISP, I can't remember. Um, I have the freebie CD-ROM around somewhere, I think. Anyway, this game is about jumping from body to body, and it actually breaks the fourth wall. It asks right at the start, it asks the player to put their soul in the body of the character in the game. It's an action game rather than a mystery, and the gameplay is questionable, but the world is phenomenal, and the sound is really good. Um, so, those are my media recommendations. And I think that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrissabriskie.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.